Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green, your real estate podcast with your host, Craig Merlin. On this week's episode, we have Kip Kolajewski, who has a very interesting story. Um, when it comes to the real estate world, he kind of is living, is living the dream. Um, or I know a lot of people in the real estate world who basically have the dream of um, falling down kind of the same lines that Kip did. But I'm going to let him describe that. I, want, I don't want to butcher his story at all, uh, but it's very interesting. I'm very excited to welcome him in. Uh, very interesting guest. Kip, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks for having me. Um, I currently own and operate a real estate multifamily value add shop based in Los Angeles, California. We're vertically integrated. We do property management, uh, acquisitions, construction, and asset management. Uh, I started the business, uh, Climate Capital Management, uh, with my business partner, Nathan Richards, in 2010. We currently manage and own about I think, 30 properties uh, all throughout Southern California. Um, and, you know, it's something I started in 2010, so I, I got very lucky timing-wise. Yeah, that's definitely a, a good time to start after the basically the bottom. Um, so, so tell us how you got started. Uh, what, what kind of drove you towards, uh, a real estate and B doing what you do? Absolutely. So first and foremost, I was lucky to have, uh, parents and, and generationally be involved in real estate. Uh, my mother does tenant representation work at Cushman and Wakefield for the last 30 or 40 years. And, uh, my father, uh, had, a apartment syndication company, a brokerage, uh, owned a commercial office, retail, etc. Uh, throughout sort of his career. Um, I got my real estate license at 18. Uh, I went to SMU in Dallas, Texas, and I spent uh, the first two years there. And uh, as some of you may know, SMU is a bit of a party school. Uh, you know, it wasn't really for me. Uh, school has never been something that I necessarily excelled at. And I wanted to figure out how to get started in the workforce uh, early on. Um, so after two years uh, or a year and a half at SMU, um, I started looking into the foreclosure market. And uh, with my business partner, uh, would focus on single-family homes and apartment buildings in Los Angeles. Uh, if I recall correctly, there were probably 300 or 400 properties that would come up in a given week. And being in Dallas, Texas, it was my responsibility to research and evaluate each and every property that was coming up. Uh, and that's sort of how I got started in understanding the market and understanding uh, the valuations of each property, each location, each neighborhood, uh, etc. Um, after spending two years at SMU, I transferred to Pepperdine and uh, you know, was still working on foreclosures. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my business partner and I, who were both uh, young at the time, I was 20, uh, did not realize the amount of sophistication that went into that business model uh, it was just the two of us where our competitors had maybe 15 or 20 employees working at a time, uh, and they were able to make decisions on properties in five minutes rather than us having to drive to each property over the weekend or the weekday and show up at the courthouse steps with uh, cash in hand. 
So uh, very unsuccessfully, we tried to execute uh, purchasing foreclosed properties or soon to be foreclosed properties. And, uh, um, you know, I ended up stumbling into my first apartment building, uh, which was a four unit building in Westchester. Um, you know, I, I would say that real estate has always been a passion from, of mine, especially growing up in L.A. Uh, in a real estate family. And, uh, you know, recognized it as a great opportunity since, uh, you know, many people have been successful in real estate and everyone always needs a place to live. Wow. So that's, that's, that's a quite, quite a story. Um, so let me, I have a couple of questions that, that kind of came up uh, throughout your story, even though they're not exactly in much of an order. Um, one is how many, you said that you own, I believe, 30 properties. How many units does that consist of? So we currently have 300 units. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more as a caveat. We have an additional 400 units, but that is more of a fund-to-fund uh, -fund or a co-GP model opposed to actually owning and managing them as the operator. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but ha so basically, are you owning 10 property or you said 30 properties um, and 300 units? So. I mean, that's, are they each a hundred units or do you have one or two that are, you know, smaller and then you have a couple that oh. are like, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Yes. Or are they so all fairly hundred? I would say that they're all um, on the smaller end. So in Los Angeles, the price per unit is very high based on it being sort of a gateway city and uh -huh. what I would consider a tier one location. Um, so a majority of our properties are 10 units. Uh, to 20 units uh, per property, which uh, unfortunately is a nightmare trying to manage a scattered site portfolio. But uh, in Los Angeles, with the way that the city's constructed and built, uh, there aren't many 50 to 100 unit mm -hmm. buildings that trade hands on an annual basis. Okay, understood. Uh, another question I had is, how did you meet your business partner? So I know when somebody's just starting up, um, you know, unless you have an association to whatever you're getting into, like you had with your family's association in real estate, uh, it, it might be hard finding, you know, somebody who can either partner up with you or coach you or something along those lines. So how did you meet your business partner? Absolutely. I would say my business partner sort of fell into my lap. Uh, he was doing brokerage work at the time. Um, again, I was 19, I think at that point, uh, going to college in uh, Dallas. And so uh, I needed someone on the ground. And uh, you know, he's a very competent person uh, and is hardworking. So, um, you know, I, I would say he fell, in, fell into my lap. I um, would probably say that the best way to find a business partner is uh, relationship-based and uh, figuring out ways to, uh, I guess, meld your uh, core strengths and weaknesses together. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's not just finding somebody who can provide you with capital. It's finding what skills they can add, whether it be expertise in an area or something like that. In addition to capital, you know, just finding somebody who can provide capital. You don't you don't want to partner up with necessarily with a bank. Um, I Absolutely. And, and as a caveat to that, about six months ago, we added a third business partner um, who has sort of helped us grow our business. Um, and uh, he's someone I, I've known for a while as well, uh, trust you know, tremendously, and 
um, you know, he adds an additional uh, sort of layer to our business model in allowing us to grow uh, beyond the smaller units and into larger or more institutional level. Okay, so so talk to me. Let's let's go back towards the beginning of uh, when you're first making this decision to get in and basically do this full time. Talk to me. Obviously, everyone has their different feelings and emotions and personalities. But tell me about uh, the types of emotions and feelings and things you had to face uh, basically internally when making these types of leaps of faith or decisions, such as somebody who is going to be a broker, for instance, who is has been salaried their whole life or an hourly employee their whole life and is now facing commission based uh, earnings. So, like, what type of emotions and uh, feelings were you were you facing when you were kind of getting in? Yeah, I, you know, I was very lucky that I was young when I started and had low overhead. I never fully understand why uh, brokers don't at least pair uh, their own investments or creating some type of syndication platform for themselves while they're also brokeraging at the same time, knowing that they have almost better access to deals and uh, extremely profound insights uh, into the market. I would say um, on my end, the hardest part was uh, one, not having gone through a recession before and uh, the caution that comes with being inexperienced. Uh, you know, when we started, it was 2010 uh, and you have the media cycle discussing all of the uh, potential uh, issues and ramifications from the global financial crisis and it coming back every you know month. And so for us, um, you know, a hard part was trying to decide which properties were worth buying, which ones weren't, and uh, how do you not sort of chase the market uh, as maybe cap rates or price per, you know, cap rates go down, price per square foot goes up, and price per unit, and uh, uh, you know, we, we missed out, I would say, on a significant amount of opportunities uh, because we were inexperienced and cautious, knowing that your first few properties are your most important ones. Okay, so we, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want you to describe every single property you've ever done, but um, you described how you kind of got into your first one. Um, how do you transition from having one property, whether it's multi-tenant uh, or not, to having multiple properties. How do you kind of get over that leap uh, to become a multi-unit owner versus, and you don't have to give away any, you know, of your own trade secrets that are, you know, your exclusive things that make you money. I get that. Um, but anything you do feel comfortable telling us, how, how do you get from one to many? Yeah. You know, I would say that it, uh, it, it, it depends on what route you want to take. Uh, there's effectively two routes. One is a, a syndication platform without property management, uh, without in-house uh, investor relations, etc. Um, that is fairly easy to get started in. Uh, all you have to do is identify the property, raise the money, and keep a watchful eye. Um, the route in which you know that we took was uh, trying to build a vertically integrated platform, which for Los Angeles is extremely important because of rent control and the various bureaucratic issues or complications. Um, so, you know, I would say the first property you buy, make sure it's a great deal. Uh, you don't want to make a first misstep uh, and discourage yourself from buying additional properties. 
And if I were to do this all over again, I would uh, start with uh, buying a property, not trying to create a property management company, and uh, you're doing the construction yourself uh, because it hinders your growth. Uh, we, my business partner and I, did our own QuickBooks, uh, oversaw the construction, and had a you know, decent idea on what we were doing. But um, you know, I would have left it to the professionals, and, and as we got enough units, moved on to hiring in-house. So, just just to double check, you're saying constructing, doing renovations, or you built from the ground up? Mm. We did not build from the ground up. However. A lot of the buildings we bought, we did uh, down to the studs remodels on, in which we'd need to pull permits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the construction isn't necessarily the complicated part. Uh, it is the property management, who's going to fix the toilet, who's going to deal with the tenant phone calls at 2 in the morning. Um, you know, When a tenant wants to break their lease, who's going to have that hard discussion? And... Uh, um, at least where we're located and in rent control markets, there's so many legalities surrounding it that it takes a very long time to get up to speed. So for about a year or two, um, maybe three, we were doing our own QuickBooks and we were overseeing everything with no help. Uh, clearly at this point, I believe we have nine employees um, and yeah, they're instrumental in allowing us to grow. Uh, but our, our growth curve was, I would say, uh, slightly slower than others because we tried to do everything. Uh huh. That, that definitely makes sense. So um, obviously, if you are or you said you are a, a property manager, you have a, a sector of your company is management, correct? Correct. Um, so obviously you're dealing with issues being a landlord. So what are some valuable traits that um, either a property manager or a landlord can have to make this whole process easier? Um, dealing, deal, not necessarily dealing with, but just facing uh, their tenants. Um, I would say, first and foremost, communication skill. Um, especially if you don't have a third, pro- third party property manager, you're dealing with all different personality types and uh, people's you know, emotions that either run hot or cold throughout them leasing the property. Um, so you have to be able to put uh, you know, some of the issues to rest that you know, either the tenants disagree with you on or um, you, know, you find difficult. Uh, second is probably organization. Uh, it's a highly detailed job, uh, and you know to be the best in-class operator or to operate your building efficiently, you need to have access to all of the information. Um, and you know if you don't know where a lease is or uh, you misplace a tenant's phone number, it can take a lot of time to try and find that information again or put you in a sort of negative situation. Um, in the future. And then uh, lastly, you know, clearly you have to have some type of financial skills. Uh, if you're doing a four unit building uh, or a 10 unit building uh, and it's a one off personal investment, uh, it's probably on the easier end to manage. But as you have 30, you know, 30 units over you know, a 15 or 20 mile radius, um, you know, it's, it gets a lot more complicated. Yeah, for sure. So what can you tell me if you can think of uh, one fairly quickly 
Um, what's the biggest disaster you've had to face as a landlord? Can you think of a story where you were, you know, like called two in the morning and the place is flooded or something like that? Yeah, you know, what is the biggest uh, disaster? We had we had two recently. You know, our business model is primarily, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily update the internal systems of the property. So we don't uh, do new electrical, new plumbing, um, which clearly creates some repair issues and maintenance issues. Uh, over the past six months, we had a one property that had a electrical fire. Uh, where we had to vacate two or three of the units uh, and we had another unit uh, where the sewer line backed up and it sort of fled down into uh, the unit below. So how do you deal with that? What, what, do you, what do you do in those situations that seem so devastating to find out like your place is burning down? Yeah, you know, there's certainly anxiety that surrounds it. Um, I would say in regards to uh, the fire issue, um, you know, fortunately, we have a welcome package for each tenant that moves in that instructs them in case of emergency, call 911. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say besides, you know, the concern for tenant safety, um, the other issue is financial and how long are they out of living in the unit for and you have to put them up in a hotel. Um, at this point, we have probably 20 to 30 uh, construction workers, some of which are handymen. So we're able to pretty quickly figure it out. But I have definitely in the middle of the night uh, had to go to a, to a property to try and oversee uh, a tenant issue, which, which, which is never fun. I'd rather be sleeping, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would, I would say so. And not dealing with the burning down building. Um, so tell me real quick, just for a little background, how... Tell me about the uh, demographics of your properties. Are they all like somewhat in in the LA area or? Uh, Yes. So um, except for the CoGP transaction we recently closed in California, uh, they are all in Los Angeles County. Um, When we first started, we tried to track emerging neighborhoods. Um, you know, I'm part of the, I guess, millennial demographic. And as you know, uh, millennials, there's a huge uh, percentage of millennial renters. And so as neighborhoods were changing, we tried to follow them. Um, at a certain point, we went from let's buy every, every and any property we can to let's identify an area or a few areas that we think are going to increase in value and create synergies um, because of the distance for our property management company. Um, Right now, we sort of run the gamut within uh, the apartment sort of sector. We do uh, delocations with Section 8 tenants, uh, C and maybe B minus locations, uh, in more gentrifying emerging markets. And recently we have started buying A locations as well, uh, like West Hollywood and Westwood where you, uh, UCLA is. Interesting. Um, so, so you, you briefly mentioned how you were kind of prospecting for deals. What is a good deal? What does that mean to find a good deal? You know, it, I, I would say that it uh, all depends on the risk uh, of the property. You can buy a four cap that's built in 2016, uh, and that could be a good deal uh, if it's located in downtown LA. 
Um, or you could buy a, you know, eight and a half cap if it is in a uh, D location. Um, what is a good deal? I, I would say we primarily focus on uh, how to provide dividends or distributions to our investors over a certain percentage. So we're typically at a five to an eight percent preferred return uh, for our investors. And at the very minimum, we have to be able to hit that cash flow over the life term of the investment. Um, for us, we are agnostic to the cap rate going into a deal, but uh, we are more so focused on the cap rate. Exiting the deal? Once, exit, yeah, oh, more so at market rents. Uh-huh. So, oh, okay, okay. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. So, so we just have to make sure our business model, because of rent control, is is very much based on rental upside. Uh-huh. Um, and so, in the past, we bought you know a property that's a one and a half cap. Whoa! Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know we were uh, successfully able to uh, relocate and negotiate buyouts with the tenants. Wow. Uh, which is what our business model. So, uh, all right. So this, this just opened up a whole new world of questions. Um, so buying a, a one and a half cap, why do you buy at that level? Um, and for listeners, um, the, the lower the cap, basically the more expensive the property uh, in terms of the net operating income. So, so buying at a one cap basically is saying that for the net operating income that it's producing, you're paying way too much for that. Are you doing it because you think that you can get higher uh, rents if you fix up the place? That's correct. So at the property, there was about 300 or 350% rent gross uh, or rental upside, uh, depending on the amount of vacancies we were able to achieve. It's a good amount. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's a very different business model uh, to a majority of the United States based on the fact that we have rent control and you have tenants who are living in these units uh, since the 1970s or 1980s at extremely low rents. And so, uh, you know, they provide mutually uh, beneficial opportunities for us and the tenants, um, you know, if they're interested in taking a buyout. Interesting. So these people that are, just explain rent control a little bit as well, because in Florida, we don't really... Or I don't think that exists at all in Florida. I only thought it was in like New York and LA. I don't. I don't know of um, any other places that have that. Can you explain it a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, each, you know, each uh, city, you know, Los Angeles's rent control is effectively rent stabilization, which means that when a tenant moves into their unit, you can only increase the rent by, uh, let's say, three or four percent, whatever the city allows for. And the tenant, after their year lease, immediately moves into uh, a month-to-month tenantship. And so uh, for owners who maybe are less sophisticated or are less interested in uh, juicing the NOI of their property, um, you know, they keep the tenants there for you know, decades at uh, extremely low rents. Um, you know, there are caveats to rent stabilization and there are various forms of rent control. Um, in New York, when a tenant moves out, uh, you you basically aren't able to mark to market the rent, uh, which we're able to do in Los Angeles. So if a tenant is paying $800 and they vacate and we can renovate their unit and rent it at market rent, 
um, you know, that's allowed. Where that's not allowed in New York? From my understanding, I don't know in New York, Uh uh, but from my understanding, they recently changed the laws in New York uh, where you are only able to increase it, let's say, 5%, even after a tenant vacates, Mm -hmm. um, which we have coming uh, on the the, uh, state ballot uh, November uh, 2020. So... um, We've, we had it on the ballot, I believe, in 2018. got voted down. Uh, 61% voted against it. Um, but it's a pretty huge risk for us knowing that um, we may be able to only increase rents by 5% per year, even if a tenant vacates. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's potentially uh, hazardous signals ahead in the future for, for your business. Uh, how do you deal with things like that, the uncertainty of uh, like laws changing and things like that with your business? Absolutely. I, I thoroughly enjoy research, so uh, it sort of fits into my wheelhouse. But uh, paying attention to uh, laws uh, that are being created either at the state or city level uh, is extremely important. Um, you know, uh, to sort of dive in a little further, um, the ballot measure um, has to be adopted by each separate city. So even though it could be passed statewide, each separate city has to make an election on whether or not they want uh, vacancy uh, control. And so, uh, you know, we are we try to pay attention uh, to what each you know, separate municipality um, has done in the past, how strict of rent control they have, uh, and make you know a, a good assumption on where they're headed in the future if it does pass. Mm-hmm. So, so what does the future of your business look like? Are you guys going to expand into? You know, another area demographically, geographically, something along those lines. You know, uh, expand into maybe retail, industrial, some sort of commercial. Or are you, uh, you know, kind of setting your ways and just looking for deals within where you are? Absolutely. We, we love uh, industrial, commercial and retail for us at the moment isn't as exciting with everything going well, on. I agree with that, but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but... Yeah, you know, our, our third partner comes from, uh, as I said, an institutional background. Uh, he works at J.P. Morgan in their CMBS department and worked at a student housing uh, investment shop um, where he originated, I think, a billion and a half worth of properties. So our goal is to uh, you know, sort of use our L.A. portfolio, demonstrate that we are able to execute business strategies and provide returns to investors and uh, we're currently working on ways to invest out of state, um, or at least get out of, partially get out of our existing uh, business model. Um, you know, the, the hard part, that the way that I look at it is um, the buying rent-controlled or non-rent-controlled buildings in uh, Los Angeles County is, is you know, one strategy to to sort of uh, work on and exploit, um, but it's important to diversify. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree. And I was, I was definitely, I, I was definitely interested in hearing um, if you planned on doing that because, 
you know, you hear about specialization and wanting to focus in certain areas. And I've read multiple things about you don't want to have to necessarily fly across the country to deal with the property or even necessarily drive four or five hours for your property. So you want one somewhat close, but at the same time, the closer your properties are to each other, the more market locked you are. And if something happens to that single market, then, you know, you could find yourself in a deep hole there. So it's, it's right. interesting to see how different people and businesses react to that. I, I completely agree. Um, you know, for us, the, we currently have about 200 investors um, oh, wow. you know, on, our, on our syndicated platform, which from an asset management perspective is a ton of fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the goal for us is um, how can we find a strategy that is specialized, but also either state or national level. And I think we can all acknowledge the whole tier two or uh, tertiary markets are, are pretty overpicked at this point. Uh, everyone's seen the gateway cities of New York and LA, San Francisco explode in value. The returns are very difficult to create here. Uh, and your uh, locales like Denver, Austin, um, you know, have increased in value. So that opportunity, from what I can see, uh, isn't nearly as available as it once was. And so how do you format something or a strategy that you can uh, exploit maybe nationwide or uh, in various regions across mm -hmm. the U.S. that all weave the same story, uh, but you can execute on multiple levels? That's the question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you have a good answer for me? <laughs> yeah. I, hey, when you figure that out, you know, let me know. Um, <laughs> I'm looking for suggestions. <laughs> So uh, you mentioned that you have a, a whole bag full of investors. Are you looking for more investors? Uh, do you have, you know, is this something that you're marketing yourself as, you know, like looking for more capital to, to raise or are you set with the amount of investors you've found and that more than covers what you, you know, have the time or ability to do? Um, at this point, now that we have uh, 200 investors, um, we are slowing down our syndication platform. We thought that we would be able to continue to expand out and create a large web of investors. Um, our shares that we typically raise are between twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars per share, and to do a larger deal or raise a million dollars when you set such a large or such a small uh, share buy-in, it requires a ton of brain damage. And so we still have limited opportunities uh, on the syndication side and are more so focusing on uh, how do we attract uh, a singular or larger investor. Uh, uh, the uh -huh. Instead of the, uh, the amount of investors, just bigger investors? Bigger investors and preferably one in each deal. Mm. Um, the amount of investor relations that's required for a million-dollar deal with 12 partners mm. um, puts a strain on sort of our business model. Yep. Um, and so uh, you know, our last, I think, three deals uh, were all singular investors, one out of Japan uh, and another one out of London. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's great. Unfortunately, we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, I usually put my... Uh, 
guess on the spot slightly and have them kind of give a little personal plug of something that you're involved with, an organization, event, or something like that? Um, what's going on in the life of Kip? Uh, what's going on in the life of Kip? Uh, I would say a lot of sheltering in place with COVID. <laughs> um, you know, a majority of my time is, is taken up uh, working, and uh, I would like to spend more time on the charitable uh, aspect uh, of life. Uh, you know, I think it's a good time to reflect on uh, sort of the Black Lives Matter uh, issue in America. And uh, if anyone is interested in uh, donating or contributing to the cause, uh, there are plenty of great charities uh, to participate in, um, you know, to further it. Well, absolutely. Great cause, uh, affording the equality of all Americans. Uh, I really want to thank you, Kip, for coming on. I think you gave awesome information. I learned a lot because this is partially um, something that I want to be doing, growing my portfolio of uh, rental properties uh, just one by one. And it's, it was very interesting learning how you can kind of make one into two, two into three, three into six, you know, and just just absolutely exponentially multiply those and in, in a somewhat straightforward manner, um, I personally wouldn't, you know, go into creating such a, a company like you did, but everyone has their different business goals. And, you know, I think yours is a fantastic one and it seems like it's very successful. And it you definitely taught me a good amount of what I need to be looking forward to and overcoming and kind of facing in my journey to come. Absolutely. I would say, you know, from a, from a words of, of wisdom perspective, um, you know, definitely find something when you're starting uh, to more specialize in uh, that you can understand and start out with. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, uh, thank you so much for having me uh, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Bye, Chris. So that's the end of this week's episode of Getting on the Green. I'd like to thank everyone who has come on this journey with me so far. Uh, it's been a couple months since I first got started. I appreciate you, you know, being along with me for the the stumbles and the improvements, and you know, life's a process, and you should always be looking to get better at anything you're doing. And same thing goes for this podcast. So I appreciate you sticking with me. It's only going to get better. If you haven't listened to the past episodes and you're a new listener, please feel free to go back and listen. We have some awesome professionals who gave amazing insight into their to the real estate in, industry as well as their specific industry that they're working in. So give the past episodes a listen and also get ready for some other episodes that are coming out soon. I already have one or two recorded. And uh, they're pretty awesome guests with great information. So look forward to seeing you all on the next episode of Getting on the Green. Yay! <laughs>